oftentimes we find our hearts and our emotions particularly drawn towards innocent parties. Specifically, when we were watching a movie like Shawshank Redemption, we, we desperately desire to see right prevail. The challenge is that we don't always know who is truly innocent in some of those plots. There are other situations where we fight or we, we advocate for those who are helpless in their situations. We think, of, we think of unborn babies, for instance. Today's text calls for everything within our hearts. It calls for all of our emotions, everything that is within us, to, to, to worship someone that we know is innocent and who is advocating for us the ones that we know are guilty. Would you please find in your scriptures, in your copy, Isaiah chapter 52. It's page 521 of the Pew Bible, if that's what you're using this morning. Isaiah is part of the Christian Old Testament. And as you find your spot in Isaiah 52, I want to remind you that we're taking six communion Sundays to consider one of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. In this book of Isaiah, there are, are four songs about the servants of the Lord, about Jesus Christ. In a way, they, they kind of read like psalms uh, from, from the Psalter. They are found, the four songs are found in Isaiah 42, 49, chapter 50. And then the fourth song is found at the end of 52 and all the way through chapter 53. And it's this final song that we're considering over six, six communion Sundays in 2019. The song has five stanzas to it. The first stanza is the end of chapter 52, and it's the astonishing suffering servant that we, we've already considered. The first three verses of 53, it talks about the rejection of the servants. And then the verses 4, 5, and 6 talk about the success of this servant of the Lord. And verses 7, 8, and 9 talk about the innocence of the servants, and the, the song closes and addresses the sufficiency of the suffering servants. Before I read that song from Isaiah, I want to remind you of the context, about the timing of this song. Isaiah was speaking about a future day when he wrote this. We understand that Christ was, would come later down the road, uh, several hundred years later. But he was also speaking about a, a day that is yet future to us today in 2019. It's a song that that looks back at Christ's death and ahead to Christ's return. So this song prophesied not only what would happen at Christ's death, but it also prophesied that, one, that, that a day that is still yet to come, how Israel would lament over the, how, how they responded to Christ when he was here on earth and longed for the day that Christ would return. So with that in mind, would you please follow along as I read from Isaiah 52. I'll begin reading at verse number 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. 
Who has believed our reports? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgments. And who shall desire his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. He is astonishing. He is rejected. He was successful. And now in verses 7 through 9, we see that the suffering servant is innocent. Jesus was, was innocent, but every person in the human race is a sinner. We each have displayed our guilt in hundreds of ways in our lives. Think back over the last seven days of your life since we last gathered together. And consider your own sinful choices. We are guilty sinners. Jesus is the innocent servant. An innocent suffering servant is the only hope for a guilty suffering sinner. And that's our thought to take away this morning. Christian, never forget that it took the suffering servant of the Lord to redeem you from the condemnation of your own sin. Now, if you've gathered this morning and you're not a Christian, you've never been born again, you've never placed your faith in the work of Jesus Christ, you will hear much today of the suffering of Jesus Christ. And I want to extend an invitation to you to accept Christ. 
In other words, to believe that Jesus died in your place. And as you hear about that, you can pray and ask Christ to accept, you, know, to, 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 you can pray and accept Christ as your Savior right now in this service. You can talk with one of us after the service, you have further questions. But we invite you, if you're not a Christian, we invite you today to accept Christ. We will notice from verses 7, 8, and 9, three elements of Christ's innocence. First of all, we see the humility of his innocence. The Jewish people were expecting a military hero. They were expecting a, a political figure to fill the role of the promised Messiah. So this prophecy from Isaiah 53 of, of a land that, that, that was to come was, would be a shock to those who would read it to the Jews of Jesus' day. Because a lamb, a sheep, it was, it was unintelligent. A lamb was, was dirty. How many millions of animals had been sacrificed over the years during the Jewish sacrificial system, using the Jewish sacrificial system. Each sacrifice reminded them that the penalty for sin is death. But those sacrifices also taught that God would accept an innocent substitute dying in the place of repentant sinners. Hebrews chapter 10, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, those animals were just a reminder that it would take the promised one, the anointed one, the promised Messiah, to take away the guilt of sins, to take away sin. So no animal could be the substitute for a human being's sin. It required a consenting will to substitute for the consenting wills of human beings who give themselves to sin. In other words, we make choices. We are sinners by birth and by choice, as our statement of faith says for Harvest Bible Church. So we have consenting wills. We make, a, we, we make a choice. We make a decision to sin. It took, the, it took a consenting will. It took someone who was able to consent to be the sacrifice for our sins, to be able to remove finally the guilt of our sins. That is precisely the lesson that we take from this, from this servant song. And as four, Acts 4, chapter 12 says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Verse 7 of Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and his sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Remember the patience of Christ in the garden through his praying and through his arrest before Pilate in the judgment hall and certainly as he hung on the cross in agony for hours. He offered no physical resistance. In fact, in the garden, he told Peter to, to put his sword away. He healed the ear of the guard that had been cut off. As the old song goes, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. Did you notice that in verse 7, two times we were pointing to the silence of Christ? We read of this account from Matthew 27 earlier in the service. This is self-control. This silence was self-control that no mere human being could have exercised. Even the most righteous of humans could not have remained silent. You are familiar with Job. He has been described as a man of great patience, but he even cursed the day of his birth. Moses was declared to be the meekest man but we all remember when he had finally had enough and he spoke abruptly and he was left out of the promised land. You can, speak, you can remember the Apostle Paul who 
It was the Apostle Paul. But he reviled against God's high priest, Acts chapter 23. But Jesus is not Job. Jesus is not Moses. Jesus is not the Apostle Paul. Jesus is Jesus, the Son of the living God. He is a suffering servant who remains silent. As 1 Peter 2 reminds us, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Charles Simeon, from years gone by, said it this way. He painted this picture. I hope it will be helpful for you. Nothing can exceed the beauty and propriety of the images by which our Lord's patience is here illustrated. As a sheep, when the shearer is stripping it of its clothing, makes neither noise nor resistance, and as a lamb sports about, even while being driven to the slaughter, yea, and licks the very hand that is lifted up to slay it, so our blessed Lord endured all His sufferings silently, willingly, and with expressions of love to his very murderers. Jesus was willing to remain silent in the face of these false accusations. The one who had spoke the world into existence is now silent when those whom he, who, whom he created are oppressing him. He keeps quiet. This is not the natural response. The natural response to unjust accusations would be to defend oneself, to cry out, to complain, to groan. We don't suffer silently. We don't suffer quietly well, do we? We don't typically respond to false accusations with complete silence. But Christ did this. His silence displayed His humility. It spoke to His willingness to die in our place. After all, that was the mission of Him coming to the earth. That was why he came. He came to die in the place of sinners, so he opened not his mouth. First in the garden when he was arrested, then before Pilate in the judgment hall. You see, ignorant animals go to slaughter without a fight. The suffering servant went to be slaughtered with a calm heart and a silent mouth, but he was not ignorant of what, what was ahead for him. He knew what was coming. Remember, he prayed in the garden with knowledge and with expectation of what it meant to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. And yet he remained silent. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Yes, even the death of the cross. Think about it this way. Had he called 10,000 angels? Had he rejected his Father's plan? Or had he disobeyed the mission of the cross? He would no longer be an innocent, suffering servant. And an innocent, suffering servant is the only hope for a guilty, suffering sinner like you and like me. Verse 7 points us to the display of his innocence. <clears throat> Verse 8 reveals the irony of the suffering servant's innocence. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. We read of his innocence in verse number 7. And now we're, we're, we're seeing this, this, this idea in verse number 8 of, of prison and judgment and further oppression. Would you take a moment 
just to, to hold a spot here in Isaiah 53, but also find, a, find your way over to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. And look at chapter number 8 with me. Here we read of an Ethiopian official who was on his return from Jerusalem. And along his journey, he reads from the Old Testament. And in fact, he's reading from this passage of, from Isaiah chapter 53. Acts chapter 8. And in God's sovereign, it's, it's, it's a beautiful picture of how God sovereignly leads helpers and, and means to, lead, to, to help other people understand the Scriptures and, and explain and, and evangelize and, and how God draws people to himself. God brings the evangelist Philip to help the Ethiopian official understand what he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. So you're in Acts chapter 8. Look at verse number 30, and I'll read a few verses there. And Philip ran thither to him, to the, to the, to the uh, official, and he heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understand us what you're reading? And he said, How can I accept that some man should, should guide me, should explain it? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture he read was this. So here's where this, this official was reading. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the, the eunuch, the, the, the official, answered Philip and said, I pray thee, I, I'm asking you, who was Isaiah speaking of? Of himself? Or some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus, the suffering servant of the Lord. The official wanted to know who was being was taken from prison and who was being judged. So back in, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 8, there's there's kind of two legal terms being being used here in verse number 8. Prison, uh, beginning, he was taken from prison and from judgment. Maybe some of you are reading from a different translation. Maybe a better translation there would be oppression. So this prison or oppression is referring to the injustice that Jesus, the suffering servant, endured during his trials and arrest. He was bound up. There were times of solitude. There was a scourging. There was a crown of thorns. There was mocking. There was spitting. There is physical and emotional and, and, and mental and spiritual oppression. Prison. The fact of the matter was there were multiple verdicts to declare him innocent, but he was delivered over to be crucified anyway. The angry crowd demanded his death. The great irony of the suffering servant's innocence is that he did endure a trial, that he remained innocent, and that he was executed nonetheless. That's the irony of the suffering servants. The other legal word then is, is judgment. It's referring to the various trials that Jesus endured before Pilate and Herod. So Christ was taken away to be executed via trials and oppression. But in reality, there was no attempt at a fair trial. Isaiah tells us that the suffering servant was cut off from the land of the living. Again, my mind goes back to creation. The very one who created man and woman who breathed into them the breath of life, was now being removed from the land of the living. He was being removed via oppression from the human race that he created. That's what we have done. We have, we have oppressed the creator of the world. Isaiah explains that the stroke of judgment was on behalf of his people. 
The substitutionary atonement is again flung into our face. Christ was cut off from the land of the living because of the sins of his people. Sin is something that God cannot overlook. It's the truth of the gospel. The gospel doesn't overlook or just kind of sweep under the rug our sins. Rather, the gospel presents a rescue from sin while simultaneously addressing sin. Somebody put it this way. The point here is that though people regarded the servant stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, they did not realize the stroke of judgment was not for his own transgressions, but for the sins of the nation, and for the, not for the nation only, but for the sins of all his people, from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Our oppression, our judgment would make sense, wouldn't it? Because we have sinned. Think about your sin. Revengeful and hateful thoughts about another person. Sexual lusts. Self-focus in your marriage. Failure to be a dispenser of mercy and grace to others, even as you have been a recipient of grace and mercy from God. Selfishness displayed in, in dozens of different ways. Leaning on our own understanding. We are sinners, friends. We are deserving of the judgments. But Christ, the innocent lamb, unfairly tried, oppressed by those he created. That's the irony of our suffering servant's innocence. This morning we must understand that an innocent suffering servant is the only hope for guilty suffering sinners like you and me. Verse 7 points us to the display of his innocence. Verse 8 reveals the irony of his innocence. Verse number 9, we see the vindication of his innocence. Let me read verse number 9 again. He was made, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus was crucified, you remember, with common criminals. So it was expected that his body would be treated the same way that their bodies were treated. Typically that meant leaving the bodies on the crosses to be taken care of as, as, as birds or wild animals came to eat flesh. But this is contrary to the law of God as we can read in Deuteronomy 21. What would normally happen to those crucified by Romans would not happen to the suffering servant of the Lord. Psalm 16 says, For you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, nor let your Holy One see corruption. So instead, as, as verse number 9 in Isaiah 53 tells us, the servant of the Lord would be, would, would be with a rich man in his death. And we know that that rich man was Joseph of Arimathea. He was the secret follower of Christ. He was the one that went to Pilate to ask for the body of Christ and then provided a tomb for Jesus to be laid in. Then Joseph cared for the body of Christ along with the assistance from Nicodemus. And now, Christ's humiliation was complete. And Isaiah points us to the vindication of Christ's innocence. The suffering servant was given an honorable burial and his dishonorable, after his dishonorable death because Christ was innocent. Instead of his body being devoured by wild animals and then his bones thrown into a trash heap outside of Jerusalem, Christ's body was placed into a new tomb of a, of a wealthy follower. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. It's the last phrase of verse number 9 that indicates that turn from Christ's humiliation towards his exaltation that we will come to next time in verses 10 through 12. So Isaiah tells us that Christ had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Jesus Christ was indeed innocent. This is not teaching us that we should be silent towards all injustice that we may experience in this life. In other words, this is not teaching us that we have to be silent when it says there is no deceit uh, in his mouth, or in verse number 7, when it talks about he opened not his mouth. This is not teaching us that victims of abuse should remain silent. Rather, this passage is teaching us that there are plenty of opportunities in this life. The example of Christ is teaching us that there are many opportunities in this life that we can imitate the path of humility that Christ exemplified for us. There are times when the right thing to do is just to be quiet and to let love cover a multitude of sins. Jesus shows his his humility by not retaliating. If If the one who had done no violence and the one who had no deceit in his mouth did not retaliate, how much more should we who have done violence and have had deceit in our mouths not retaliate? In other words, we have been forgiven for so much. Therefore, we should be people who are forgiving of others who have wronged us. Remind your own hearts on this Lord's Day about the mercy that God has shown to you. How can you choose to not show mercy to others if He has shown mercy to you? Can you withhold the I told you so's in your marriage relationship? Can you not give the the earned condemnation to your spouse and instead grace them with kindness? How about at church? There are so many opportunities to misunderstand one another, to offend one another. Do you extend mercy to other church members? Are you gracious to other, other church members? Do you demand your own way? Brothers and sisters, We are called to foster a heart towards mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, Jesus said. So practice being a grace dispenser. Pray that our church would grow in a practice of quick forgiveness of one another. Lead the way in your homes by not demanding repayment when you have been wronged. Don't seek revenge against others. They don't owe you because they forgave you because you forgave them. They don't owe you because you showed kindness to them. Friends, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sin- from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted yourself. Be reminded that an innocent suffering servant is the only hope for guilty suffering sinners. You don't have to take the situation into your own hand like some movie character in order to experience redemption. God has already taken it in His hands. It's been in His hands all along, even before the foundation of the world, we read in Ephesians. So how do we respond? What is our response to to our consideration this morning of the innocence of the suffering servant? First of all, as I prayed earlier from Ephesians 5.1, that we should be imitators of God as beloved children, that we should walk in love. So go imitate Jesus' humility. 
Go imitate his humility in being willing to, to not retaliate against others. Be patient. Choose not to retaliate. Secondly, live in praise to God for the innocence of Jesus. Spend intentional time this week praising God that his son, who knew no sin, became sin for you in order that you might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And when our eyes are focused upward in praise, and when our eyes are focused outward in service and humility towards others, our walk with God will be strong. And God will be pleased with how we walk with him. So now as we prepare to come to further remember the suffering servants, let's remember that great exchange that we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ and he has taken our sin upon him even though he knew no sin. So would you please find your black hymnal, the hymns, Modern and Ancient.